Most of us have heard of Murphy. Murphy, it seems, has a succession of laws. For instance, nothing is as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than you think. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. A day without a crisis is a total loss. The other line always, always moves faster. 90% of everything is crud. No matter how long and how hard you shop for an item after you've bought it, it will be on sale somewhere else cheaper. You will remember to take out the trash when the garbage truck is two doors away. Friends come and go, but enemies seem to accumulate forever. The light at the end of the tunnel are the headlights from an oncoming train. The chances of the bread falling with the peanut butter and jelly side down is directly proportional to the cost of the carpet. And then, this is my favorite, Murphy was actually an optimist. Nehemiah probably felt as though Murphy had just ganged up on him. His brother had come to see him and announced that the residents of Jerusalem were victims of serious anti-Semitism and harassment, and that the protective wall and gates around Jerusalem had been broken down and burned. Nehemiah's reaction to that tragic information was to mourn, weep, fast, pray, and wait on God, and he continued to do that for four consecutive months. As he waited, though, Nehemiah prepared a strategic plan to create a solution to those problems at Jerusalem. Artaxerxes was the head of the ancient media Persian Empire, and he was the only person that could give Nehemiah permission to do something about that unfortunate situation at Jerusalem. Nehemiah served Artaxerxes as his cupbearer, so he had immediate and direct access to him. But Nehemiah hadn't said anything to Artaxerxes because he felt the timing hadn't been right. He was waiting on God to open up a more advantageous moment for him to discuss that specific problem. Nehemiah was a visionary. And although visionaries are dreamers, visionaries are more than just dreamers. Visionaries are also doers. Nehemiah hadn't just been sitting around dreaming about this Jerusalem project. He hadn't been just dreaming about reconstructing the wall and gates. No, he had been doing some serious, serious planning. He had been doing his homework. He had strategically planned ahead in anticipation of speaking to Artaxerxes. Soldiers during the American Revolution said, Trust in God and keep your powder dry. Meaning that in the thick of battle, pray, yes, pray, but also fight. We should agonize in prayer more than we do, but at the same time we should also organize a plan to put into action the moment God does answer our prayer. There are seven things Nehemiah did as a part of his planning. We addressed the first three last time. Let me touch on them and then move on to the remainder. Number one, Nehemiah thought this situation through. Nehemiah thought this situation through. The reason we know Nehemiah had been planning throughout that entire four-month waiting period was because he was fully prepared to answer Artaxerxes' questions. He didn't just come up with something off the top of his head. He had carefully thought through this situation. I remember once someone said to me something had just happened. He said, we don't have enough time to stop and think through this thing. We're just going to have to trust God. 
That isn't faith. That's foolishness. God gave us a brain, and He expects us to use it. If we go to God and ask Him for something significant, then in anticipation of an answer from Him, we need to be planning what to do the moment He answers. Bernard Berwick admitted, Whatever failures I have known, whatever errors I have committed, whatever follies I have witnessed in both public and private life, have been the consequence of action without thought. Notice, the consequence of action without thought. Someone said there are two categories of failures. Two. Those who thought and never did, and then those who did and never thought. Nehemiah was not one of those. He carefully thought through this entire thing. I remember seeing this caption on the poster. There was this confused-looking orangutan sitting in his zoo cage and was depicted as saying, When I works, I works hard. When I sits, I sits loose. And when I thinks, I fall asleep. Even though there is a slight chance um, that we might fall asleep, we still need to think and think and think and plan ahead as Nehemiah did. Number two, Nehemiah moved ahead in spite of his apprehension. Remember, Nehemiah was at a banquet. He was serving Artaxerxes his wine and meal, and as he did, it became apparent to his master that he was extremely sad. He was grieving. Nehemiah could no longer hide the intense hurt and grief he felt for his people in Jerusalem and for the massive debris and rubble that remained from the devastation after the Babylonians had caused that destruction. That sadness on Nehemiah's face could have been, could have been a potential problem for Nehemiah because it was considered an offense to be sad in the presence of the king. The king didn't want people reigning on his parade. He didn't want sadness in his presence, and so a sad person could be severely punished or even put to death. That's the reason verse 2 reads that once Nehemiah heard that Artaxerxes recognized his sadness, Nehemiah was, quote, dreadfully afraid. He didn't know how the king would react to his sadness. But although Nehemiah was terrified and had serious apprehension about responding to the king's questions, he didn't permit that fear to interfere with his plan. Number three, Nehemiah established a goal. Nehemiah had established a specific, precise goal. And his goal was to, be, to rebuild Jerusalem. In particular, Nehemiah wanted to rebuild that decimated wall and those burned down gates so that his people could be safe and secure and protected from all the Gentile abuse and harassment. Now number four, and this is where we begin this morning. Nehemiah arranged a schedule. Nehemiah arranged a schedule. Verse 5, And I, Nehemiah, said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant, meaning himself, Nehemiah, has found favor in your sight, I ask you that you send me to Judah. Remember, Judah is the southern kingdom. After Israel as a nation divided, ten of the twelve tribes migrated to the north. Two of the smaller tribes remained in the south. Benjamin and Judah, and that kingdom was Judah. He said, I ask that you send me to Judah. 
that southern region, that southern kingdom, to the city of my father's tombs, Jerusalem. His ancestors were buried at Jerusalem. Now, why does he want to go to Judah and to Jerusalem? Notice, that I may rebuild it. That I may rebuild it. Verse 6, then the king said to me, now notice this next phrase. The king is responding to his request. The queen also sitting beside him. I'm curious, why did Nehemiah mention that the queen was sitting beside Artaxerxes? I mean, that was the normal, wouldn't it be, for the queen to sit beside the king? Since she was married to the king, he understood she did have persuasive influence on his receptivity to what Nehemiah was requesting. So it could be that. Also because of Nehemiah's close working proximity to Artaxerxes and the queen, it was entirely possible that the queen and Nehemiah were actual friends. And Nehemiah hoped that mutual association would turn out to his advantage. Essentially, Nehemiah hoped that the queen, he wanted her to hear the request, just as he did Artaxerxes. He was hopeful that the queen would encourage her husband to listen to his request. And Artaxerxes did listen. Notice his response to Nehemiah. Verse 6 continues. Nehemiah, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Nehemiah had a schedule. Nehemiah had basically asked for a sabbatical from his job as a cupbearer so that he could go and rebuild Jerusalem and in particular the protective wall and gates. Artaxerxes then wanted to know how long Nehemiah anticipated that construction project to take and when could he be expected to return to serve him at the palace. Nehemiah had already scheduled out that timeline. So he was able to give him an approximate time for the construction and a return date. Now, I need to mention, Nehemiah is uh, at the palace. He's at that banquet. Judah and Jerusalem weren't just down the block and around the corner. A straight line from Shushan, the palace, to Jerusalem some 764 miles. But he didn't go in a straight line. He probably took an alternate route. Some estimate that the route might have been 900 to 1,000 miles. We don't know because we don't know the precise route he took. But it would have taken him at least minimum three months to make that journey. So this was a huge thing. But he had to factor in all of that travel time, then the construction time, and all of that. So Nehemiah had earlier created an agenda on his calendar so that if Artaxerxes asked about that, he would be prepared to give him an answer. And he was. Nehemiah was a strategist. He was thinking ahead. He had been planning. I want us to notice this. Since Artaxerxes wanted Nehemiah to return, ultimately return to his former position at the palace, it meant that Artaxerxes considered Nehemiah to be a valued employee. It seems Artaxerxes was going to hold his position open for him. That speaks volumes about his work performance. One reason I appreciate Nehemiah is that we can teach the actual text and narrative itself and also teach practical applications from the text. So let me do that. Scheduling is the same as creating an agenda. 
So we're using the word agenda as an acronym. Agenda is spelled A-G-E-N-D-A. A means arrange our schedule according to priorities. Arrange our schedule according to priorities. What matters most? Charles Swindoll, the famous author and pastor, who is now 86, said, Punctuality is simply a time management matter. Punctuality is essentially a time management matter. Some people are almost never on time. Some people are predictably late. Those people know who they are. I know who they are. The problem is, these people aren't scheduling themselves to be on time. That's true in the church. Worship services don't start when we get here. Worship services here start at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. And we are committed to start on time. Now, I admit, um, I would rather someone be late than not come at all. Better late than never, I believe, is is fine. So if you're late, I'm not going to make fun of you um, or anything like that. I'll just say, I'm glad you're here. But if attending church is a priority, and it should be, then we should schedule ourselves to be on time. I have a schedule on Saturday night. I prepare for Sunday morning on Saturday night. I know exactly what I'm going to wear on Saturday night. Uh, I know what time I'm getting up on Sunday morning. I know how long it's going to take to review my message. Um, I have everything laid out so that I can be here minimum 30 minutes before the first service. And often I'm here 45 minutes, an hour or more before the service starts. But I schedule it. It's scheduled. Remember, punctuality is a time management matter. And effective time management is facilitated through scheduling. G, A, G. G means give our schedule 100% effort. It doesn't matter how complex or sophisticated someone's schedule is on paper if it if an all-out effort isn't made to maintain that schedule then it's meaningless e means eliminate unnecessary activities there are four steps to eliminating unnecessary stuff and we all have stuff that should be eliminated one decide or determine what to do second then do it Determine what to do, then do it. Third, decide what not to do. Fourth, then don't do it. Don't do it again. Enough said. N means never settle for less than the best possible outcome. Never settle for less than the best possible outcome. We shouldn't agree to second best. Now the ultimate end is scheduling should be to achieve the best possible outcome, even if that best possible outcome isn't ideal. And often it isn't ideal. It might not be what we want in an ideal sense, but it's the best it can be. We'll go for that. D, delegate assignments. Delegate assignments. Delegating means asking, or in some cases, such as in the armed forces, it's not asking, it's demanding, requiring um, someone to assist us in doing something because there isn't enough room in our schedules for us to, to do it all on our own. Now, something I, this is a problem I have, 
Sometimes I hesitate to ask someone. I work with volunteers primarily. Our staff is small. I work with volunteers. And I hesitate to ask someone to do something sometimes that I understand this person could do and probably do better than me. But I end up not asking them because I know this person is overloaded and has too much going on. His plate is full. And so I decide that his busyness that I'm aware of would force him to say no if I ask him. And I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to put him in that position where he's forced to say no. So I never ask him. I shouldn't do that. Because how do I know if this person were presented this opportunity, he might be so excited about it, he might choose to drop something else he's doing so he would then have enough time to take on that project. I should give people the chance to say no for themselves. I shouldn't say no for them. And so I need to improve in that. A, adapt to what happens. Adapt to what happens. Some interruptions, not all of them, and probably not most of them, but some interruptions are divine ordained appointments. So we need to be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit and flexible enough that we set aside our schedules momentarily and address the situation that is the reason for that interruption. We should be flexible enough to adapt to what happens And a prime example of that was this past Wednesday. I was in an elders meeting. We had been meeting probably an hour and a half or more. And Christy suddenly interrupted us. And she said, I have an emergency prayer request. High school senior James, Jamie, Rowan, or Bear had been suffering from COVID. I was aware of that. The family had had COVID. I did not know he had been so ill. Did not know. She said, he's just been rushed to the hospital. He's not breathing. And so we immediately stopped the meeting and we prayed. I texted his father then. I said, James, what's happening? I'm prepared to come to the hospital. I had no idea where he was. He didn't respond to that. And the next moment we heard, Christy said that he had died. So the moment I heard that he had passed, I left immediately. I said, gentlemen, I have to go. Uh, Because I needed to go to the hospital because I needed to adapt to that interruption. I mean, I couldn't sit there. How could I sit there? It would be uncaring and insensitive and inconsiderate. There's no way I had to be there. As difficult as that was to go into that room and the ER and to see him there on the gurney and the family there and devastating is not even a word that adequately describes the emotion. It was horrific. It was every parent's nightmare. It is during those times, I have to be honest, I wish I were an electrician or a plumber or something else other than a pastor because it's so, so hard. Um, Scheduling is a guideline. It is not a mandate. Sometimes an interruption happens and it is so apparent. Just throw the schedule into the trash. Just dump it, ignore it, and do what needs to be done. So Nehemiah had arranged... A schedule. Number five, Nehemiah anticipated future problems. He anticipated future problems. Number verse seven. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. 
Now, Nehemiah needed to get permission to even leave the Media Persian Empire. If he didn't have permission, then the border patrol at the edge of the province would stop him and ask him where he was going. He would tell the Persian official, I'm going to Judah. Actually, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. This official would respond, that's fine, but where are your letters from Artaxerxes giving you permission to leave Persia and go to Jerusalem? If Nehemiah hadn't planned ahead, then he would have responded to this border patrol, letters, letters, what do you mean letters? I don't have any letters from Artaxerxes. In that case, this official would have said, then you have to go back to the palace at Shushan, see Artaxerxes once more, get some letters from him before I can permit you to leave the province. That's what would have happened. That didn't happen. That unfortunate conversation, that exchange at the border didn't happen though because Nehemiah had anticipated this all in advance. Some of our problems are foreseeable, but some of them are unforeseeable. Some are predictable and some are completely unpredictable. Number six, but we should anticipate problems. Number six, Nehemiah calculated the cost of this project. He calculated the cost. This was an expensive project. Verse eight, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel. Citadel means a fortified area a fortified area which pertains to the temple for the city wall for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. This is amazing. Artaxerxes is a Gentile, non-believing pagan. He doesn't believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. No, but he's fully cooperative. God is orchestrating all of this behind the scenes and arranging for Artaxerxes to be receptive to this request and to do even more than that, as we're going to see. Calculating the cost is the budget part of planning. Principle four was the scheduling part of planning. Principle six is the budgeting part of planning. That's because planning takes both time and money. Time and money. Nehemiah had just gotten permission to go to Jerusalem. But notice, he didn't start celebrating at that juncture. He didn't say, great, that's fantastic, I'm going to go. And he left the room. No, no, no. He needed more. Artaxerxes was in a receptive move, as we have just seen. He had just seen yes to this request to go to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is going to take advantage of that, and he's going to ask for more. Nehemiah understood that this was going to be a massive, massive construction project. He was going to need a huge amount of building materials. In rebuilding Jerusalem's wall and gates, Nehemiah was going to need an enormous quantity of wood. And because of that, he knew he would need letters from Artaxerxes giving him permission to get Persian timber to bring to Jerusalem. There was a man named Asaph who was in charge of the kingdom lumber yard. Nehemiah realized he would need some official requisition forms to bring to Asap from Artaxerxes, showing him that he had permission to have this enormous quality, quantity of lumber. See, Nehemiah has been seek, thinking this thing through. Nehemiah has been planning to the 
smallest detail. He asked Artaxerxes for those permission forms for ASAP now. Why does he do it now? He does it now before Artaxerxes has a chance to change his mind. He's in a receptive mood. He wants to take advantage of that. Nehemiah has been calculating the cost. And all of that happened prior to this conversation at that banquet. Let me add a New Testament twist to counting the cost. This might sound familiar. Matthew 8, beginning at verse 28. When he, Jesus, had come to the country of the Gerizines, and that's pronounced differently, uh, so I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, uh, Gerizines, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Verse 29, And suddenly they, those demon-possessed men, cried out, saying, So these are demons speaking through these men's vocal cords. And I might add, I've heard that. It's hideous. These demon-possessed men cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? I want us to notice something. Demons have sound theology. Demons have sound theology. Unlike world religions, unlike non-Christian cults. These demons understood Jesus' identity, that He was the Son of God, the same as God, God in human form, God incarnate. These demons have sound theology. So if you don't believe who Jesus is, you're dumber than a demon. You need to get together, get your act together. Uh, these guys understand. They said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time, meaning before the time demons are judged. Verse 30, now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. Swine are pigs. Verse 31, so the demons begged him, Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, meaning if you exorcise us uh, out of these men, then permit us to go away into the herd of swine. This is interesting. Jesus is going to accommodate that request from these demons, and he's going to send these demons into that herd of pigs. Verse 32, And he, Jesus, said to them, Jesus addressed these demons and said, Go, go. So when they had come out, when those demons had come out of those men, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Those demons were exorcised out of those men. Those demons came out of those men and then entered into those pigs, causing them to commit suicide. That's... I, I kind of thought that was good. All right, well, okay, mo moving on. Verse 33. I told somebody I need new material, but anyway. <laughs> verse 33. Then those who kept them fled, meaning the farmers who were keeping the pigs, fled, and they went away into the city and told everything. 
including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Verse 34, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, notice, they begged him to depart from their region. This is such a strange response. The situation was that these demon-possessed men harassed anyone that came near them. No one could go past them. They were an obstruction. These men were a constant menace and a threat to people. Jesus exercised those demons out of those men so that those men were no longer a public threat. He then sent those demons into a herd of pigs. According to Mark 5 and verse 13, that herd consisted of more than 2,000 pigs. Those pigs then ran into the sea and drowned. And after the announcement of what had happened hit the town, the people were upset at Jesus. This is mind-boggling. Were upset at him, and the inference is because although those ex-demoniacs were cured and were no longer a public threat, those 2,000 pigs were dead, and that was upsetting to them. The townspeople were afraid of Jesus and what he might do next, so they insisted he go somewhere else. Jesus doesn't want to be where he's not wanted, and so he did. Now please notice that those people wanted to get rid of themselves, wanted to rid themselves of this threat, this constant threat from these demon-possessed men. They wanted that to go away, but not at the expense of those pigs. That was just too high a cost. That reminds me of some people that want God to solve their problems, but not at a personal cost to themselves. Some people want God to cure them of alcoholism, but then want to continue to party with their alcoholic friends. To them, giving up those harmful associations cost them just too much. Edward, Edwin C. Bliss said, We live in a culture that worships comfort. How true is that? People want more than anything to be comfortable. During this century, we have seen the greatest assault on discomfort in the history of the human race. We have learned to control our environment with central heating and air conditioning. We have reduced drudgery with robotic machines and computers. We have learned to control pain, depression, and stress. We even provide electronic antidotes to boredom with cable television and video games. Most of this, most of this, is to the good. But unfortunately, it has created an impression that the purpose of life is to attain a blissful state of nirvana, a total absence of struggle or strain. The emphasis is on consuming, not producing, on short-term hedonism rather than long-term satisfaction. We seek immediate gratification of our desires and gain without any pain. The only thing I am aware of that doesn't actually cost something is salvation. And even that salvation is only free to us because it cost Jesus Christ his actual life on the cross. It cost someone. It cost him. Please understand that successful solutions and successful scheduling and planning cost something. 
Careers that actually count cost something. Excellence in the classroom costs something. Biblical discipleship costs something. Outstanding athletic performance costs something. Marriages that partners enjoy instead of endure cost something. Congregational ministries that make a difference cost something. Individual personal happiness costs something. I heard about a man that left an upper management position at a multi-billion dollar corporation. He accepted a high six-figure digit, six-digit figure annual pay cut. He also gave up four years of stock options. And he did that. He resigned his position so he could join the staff of a dynamic church as its executive pastor. He did the cost-benefit analysis of that career move. And said to himself, I can afford that. I'll pay that price. It's not a problem. And now according to his own admission, he is having the time of his life. Don't forget this related principle. One of the reasons we are to count the cost is because it's easier to get into something than to get out of that something. It's easier to get into something than to get out of that something. It's easier to get into debt than to get out of debt. It's easier to get into a romantic relationship than it is to get out of a romantic relationship. It's easier to add something to someone's schedule than to take something out of that schedule. The reason substance abuse is on the increase, and it is, the increase is exponential, is that it's easier to get into a bad habit than to get out of a bad habit. It's easier to get out of shape than it is to get into shape. We should sit down and calculate the total cost before we consider doing something. Number seven. Nehemiah expected some opposition. Nehemiah expected some opposition. Verse nine. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, meaning he has permission. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. This is fascinating. Please notice, Nehemiah has men, construction laborers essentially, that are going with him to Jerusalem, and he'll meet more there. But notice Nehemiah has been given a full military escort into Jerusalem. He said, that the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. He had been given a military escort into Jerusalem in anticipation of opposition. Nehemiah had asked Artaxerxes for military assistance so that he might fully be prepared to face resistance. And his expectations were accurate. Notice verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they, Sembalit and Tobiah, were deeply disturbed. Notice, these men are upset. Deeply disturbed that a man, Nehemiah, had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. These men were upset that this man was coming to assist the Israelites and secure for them a sense of you know, safety because he wanted to rebuild the wall. There are still Sambalots and Tobias. Sambalot and Tobias remind me of some of the progressives in the Democratic Party 
that were recently upset because Congress voted to send $1 billion to Israel to assist in restocking Iron Dome interceptors. The Iron Dome is a missile defense system capable of intercepting up to 90% of the rockets Hamas fires toward Israel's populated areas in just 11 days this past spring. 11 days, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad fired some 4,455 rockets into Israel. Ten Israelis died from those rocket launches, but hundreds more would have died had it not been for the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome is a defensive, not offensive, defensive mechanism. And in the language of the verse we just read, the Iron Dome ensures, quote, the well-being of the children of Israel. So the U.S. Congress wanted to send $1 billion to Israel to assist in restocking Iron Dome interceptors. But that upset some, not all, some of the progressives in the House of Representatives. So much so, some of them voted against it. These people are, don't want Israel to be safe. AOC, one of my faves, was so upset that the vote passed, she cried and had to be consoled. It seems, people, that in our ignorance, we have elected some anti-Semitic Sambalids and Tobias to Congress. What kind of fools are we? Our position as evangelical Christians is that we are pro-Israel. We're not anti-Palestine. Palestinians suffer much under these organizations that are committed to terrorism. And, we, and there are many Palestinian Christians, but we are pro-Israel. Satan wasn't just going to sit there and let Nehemiah pull off this project uncontested. Satan wanted to stop construction before construction could get started. And so in his aggressive attempt to discourage Nehemiah, Satan called on three of his elite antagonists. Two of those men are mentioned in this verse. Notice, Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, and before he could even unpack his bags, he met these two undesirable characters named Sambalad and Tobiah. And then he met one more additional undesirable character named Geshem. Sambalad and Tobiah, it seems, had made some earlier serious business investments in Jerusalem. It seemed to them that Nehemiah's ambitious plans to rebuild Jerusalem could hurt them in a financial sense. That was their perception. These men were frightened and upset that if Nehemiah actually rebuilt this wall and Jerusalem life was restored, then it might jeopardize their financial investments. And that meant Symbalad and Upai were extremely, extremely angered that Nehemiah was there. Notice how negative reaction these men had to Nehemiah's public announcement to rebuild this wall around Jerusalem. Verse 19, But when Sembalad the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshep the Arab, Geshep was this third critic that joined this original group because critics hang around critics. These were three hypercritical men. I still believe John MacArthur is correct when he said the church needs contributors, not critics. And these were hypercritical men. When they heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? 
Will you rebel against the king? These men didn't know what had happened. These men didn't understand that Nehemiah had been given permission from Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem and was even providing him the financial and material assistance he needed to pull off this project. These men weren't aware of that. These three stooges began to mock Nehemiah and his friends and said to them, Nehemiah, what are you doing? You can't rebuild this wall. This is a total embarrassment. This can't be done. These men started ridiculing Nehemiah. Someone said, if we set out to leave a mark on society, be sure, be sure that someone else is going to show up with an eraser. Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, and Sembala, Tobiah, and Geshem showed up anxious to eradicate and erase what he wanted to do. Remember this principle. The most blessed are also the most oppressed. The most blessed are also the most oppressed. Nehemiah has been blessed. I mean, giving, getting permission from the head of the media Persian Empire to do this in financial and material assistance and all of this, an incredible blessing. And now Nehemiah was about to be oppressed. The main reason we are attempted to give up and stop short of our goal is other people. Other people. Those other people that represent less than 20% of the population whose self-appointed function in life seems to be to encourage someone else to toss in the towel and just hang it all up. These white flag specialists never run out of excuses as to why we should just quit. Charles Swindoll said, I fear our generation has come dangerously near the I'm getting tired, so let's just quit mentality. And this is not just in the spiritual realm. Dieting is difficult, so we decide not to do it. Finishing school is a hassle, so we bail out. Cultivating a close relationship is painful, so we just back off. Participating in a meaningful ministry is demanding, so we just don't sign up. Working through conflicts in a marriage is a tiring struggle, so we just walk out. Sticking with a profession is tough, so we start looking for something else. Now, sometimes, in some cases, quitting is appropriate. Quitting something we shouldn't have started is a good thing. This is a personal opinion. Someone that has a tobacco habit should quit. Because both chewing, disgusting, chewing and or smoking tobacco are self-destructive practices. This is from science. Every cigarette you smoke, you're missing 11 minutes off your life. Why would you do that? I have often been asked, Pastor, can smoking send someone to hell? And my response is, no. That's silliness. Are you serious? Smoking doesn't send someone to hell. Smoking just makes them smell like they've been there. That's all. (laughs) So some things should be quit. But it seems that a lot of people are into illegitimate quitting. Quitting something that God has intended for them to do. Just because we're tired... We all get tired. Just because we're frustrated and discouraged and exasperated and even at the end of our rope is not a reason to quit. Notice how Nehemiah responded to these negative accusations from Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshep. Verse 20. So I, Nehemiah, answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. 
I mean, Nehemiah has seen God do all of this, start this. He's convinced he will finish what he starts. He says God's going to He's going to help us be successful. He's trusting God to help him rebuild this wall. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Nehemiah said, we're going to do this thing. God is going to enable us to do this thing. Then he said to these men, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Essentially, Nehemiah just told these guys off. Nehemiah said to Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, listen guys, like it or not, this construction project is going to happen. Do you understand? It's going to happen. Our God is going to enable us to be, rebuild this place. And you don't have any right in Jerusalem. None of you should even be here. This is the city of our God, so get out. Just get out. That was the essence of his rebuttal to these men. Nehemiah stood up to those men and determined not to call off this project. Nehemiah had serious opposition. And we're going to see it's more serious than it seems. But he refused to permit that opposition to stop him. More pastors are resigning pastorates now in greater numbers than ever before. And I just read a statistics of those pastors currently pastoring. 38% of them are considering resignation. Not retirement. No, resignation because of the demands on them. So I'm sometimes asked if I've ever, ever considered quitting. And my response has been, does the Pope wear a beanie? Do bears live in the woods? Yes, yes, yes. I have considered often tossing in the towel because I'm human. But I am determined not to quit. I heard about a famous pastor that said there are two words a Christian should remove from his vocabulary. He actually re recommended that those two words should be cut out of our dictionaries. Those words are compromise and quit. He said we should never, under any conditions, compromise our convictions. Those convictions, biblical convictions we have, should never be compromised. And he said we should never, ever quit what God has intended us to do. So this man suggesting finding those two words in the dictionary and then cutting them out. That sounded reasonable to me. So I did that. I had a dictionary. I had multiple dictionaries. I took one of them. I found those words. Compromise and quit. Which were easy to find since both of them begin with the letter K. I found them. Anyway, and using an exacto knife, I cut them out. I also eliminated some additional words on the back side of each page in doing that. So I guess I don't need those words either. But I wanted to illustrate, object and visual aid, that I was determined not to quit. Opposition is inevitable. Again, the most blessed are also the most depressed. I have a pastor friend that once moved to another congregation in another state. His acceptance vote after that entire process that normally takes months. His acceptance vote had been 97%. 97% of that congregation said, we want this man. That's an impressive number, an impressive percentage. But then just months after he got there, he found a petition circulating around his congregation that demanded his resignation. Well, things continued to deteriorate and things became so difficult that he told me he almost signed that petition himself. 
In subsequent months, more than 300 people that had opposed him left the church. It's interesting, though, that after that divine subtraction and his congregation just exploded, just blew up in numbers. He told me after this antagonistic opposition and then exodus had ripped his insides out, he said he was in emotional agony for 18 months, but God ultimately blessed him and blessed his efforts because he refused to quit. And Nehemiah wouldn't either. I realize this might date me, but some of us remember the television series called A-Team. It ran just four seasons, 1983 through 87. That series was about former members of a fictitious United States Army Special Forces unit. The four members of the team were tried by court-martial for a crime none of them had committed. The men were convicted and sentenced to serve prison terms in a military prison, but soon after escaped to Los Angeles and began working as soldiers of fortune and all the time still trying to clear their names and avoid capture by law enforcement and military authorities. One of the most often quoted lines from each episode came from George Peppard's character named Hannibal. Colonel Hannibal was in charge of this group and after this team of strange renegades would pull off some sort of calculated heroic rescue or quasi-military operation, Hannibal is seen lighting up a cigar and uttering those famous words, I love it when a plan comes together. Nehemiah has been planning for four solid months, and as we are going to see throughout this series, his plan comes together. One of Billy Graham's prayer partners shared this actual account of an older woman named Stella. She had a plan. Stella was 80 and she was blind. Because of those two things, she prayed an unusual prayer. She prayed, God, would you please just take me home to heaven? I'm done. I'm done here. Please take me to heaven. But as she prayed, she sensed that God responded, not in an audible voice from heaven, but she sensed God said, No, Stella, I'm not done with you. She said, Not done, but God, I'm 80 and I'm blind. I can't even leave my condo. It seemed that God then impressed on her, You can pray, can't you? You have a phone, don't you? And she thought, Yes, I can pray, and yes, I have a phone. And so God set a particular plan in motion in her mind. Since she was retired, she would get up and pray for two hours. But this is how she prayed. She would go through the phone book in Braille, and she would work through the A's and B's and C's and D's and on and on, and not only pray for those names one by one, but then, after praying for them, she would call them. She would actually call each name in the phone book. And the typical conversation would sound like this. Hello, my name is Stella. I'm 80 years old and I'm blind. That's the reason I'm not at your doorstep right now. I just wanted you to know that I prayed for you this morning. And even though you don't know me, I prayed for you because I want you to have the same relationship with Jesus Christ that I have. So I'm curious. 
Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? After being asked what sort of response she would receive, Stella said, Well, I have heard some words I have never heard before. This person said, That must have been difficult. Stella said, Oh, no, no, that's okay. Because over the past eight years of doing this, meaning at that juncture, she was now 88. Over the past eight years of doing this, I have prayed on the telephone with more than 9,000 people to accept Jesus Christ. I don't have a cigar, but I love it when a plan comes together. And her plan did. I want us to stand to our heads, to our feet. Uh, keep your. If you want to do that, you can do that too. That wasn't as funny as my suicide thing. You guys are just twisted sense of humor here. I can't believe you people. Anyway, Chris, would you come up just for a second? And I think here it is. Yeah, I want Chris to come up. Month and a half or so ago, Hopi and I went on our 50th anniversary vacation, and I got a text from someone, I don't remember who, I just don't remember, but they said, man, you missed it, Chris and Brooke were here today, and I go, man, I didn't know that, and uh, he didn't know I would be gone, and I felt so bad, and I texted him and said, Chris, I'm so sorry, I missed you, man, you got to come back. Chris and Brooke and their family was a very, very integral part of our congregation for years, um, they have had more than their share of heartbreak. Um, it was, I remember their grandson, just three months of age, died from SIDS. That was a horrible thing. But then it was just months after that, that Chris and Brooke's son, 17, Blake, committed suicide. And they have suffered so much, and God has brought them through it. I'm so proud of Chris and Brooke and uh, what God has done in their lives in spite of all of that. And uh, very, proud of, very proud of Chris. When he first came here, he was in school. Then he graduated with an undergraduate degree in biblical counseling because he has a heart for people. And then he just finished a master's degree in public administration. And he now works for the beloved state of Nevada. And uh, he's tolerating that. But I said, you've got to come back and visit and unfortunately, Brooke and their kids are sick today and couldn't come. But thanks for coming out, brother. I appreciate you being here. Say a few words if you'd like, and then if you would, dismiss us in prayer. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, it's great to be back, and it's great to see everybody. And, and I really want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Um, and as, you pointed, as Larry pointed out, I do work for the state. And so a lot of times you'll see me wearing blue because i got to be incognito. Um, so I just sort of want to blend in, you know. <clears throat> but... Uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and pray before uh, you guys are dismissed. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for all you do, for all your goodness and kindness, Lord. You're, you're just amazing, and we're so privileged to be a part of your family, Lord, and, and a part of this local church um, that does so much. And uh, Lord, I just want to lift this congregation up to you. Um, a lot of people are getting ready to travel and, and go enjoy Thanksgiving with family and friends. And, and I just want you to impress upon their heart, Lord, to share the gospel with the people that they encounter. Um, most of us have family members that don't know you. And uh, the holidays are the best time to get together and talk, uh, you know, religion. So I just encourage everybody to do that. And um, we also just want to lift up um, 
the folks in this world that are making decisions that are, and that are leaders um, from federal, state, local, Lord, um, household leadership. Just I, I pray that you will continue to bless um, them and help the ones that don't know you to come to know you and make decisions that would benefit you and your kingdom. Um, sometimes we get frustrated the way things are going, but I hope you just keep those people in prayer. And then lastly, Lord, I just want um, everybody's heart to be thinking a lot about those that are hurting. Um, as Larry pointed out, some members of the church have lost loved ones recently, and it's very difficult around the holiday times to deal with those things. And so, um, Lord, I, I just pray that we would keep them in prayer and their family, and, uh, and please, please bring everybody home safely from their travels. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed.